Welcome to this IQT podcast, exploring technology trends and their impact on national security. I'm Sarah Sewell, and today we're going to explore the future of the U.S. global positioning system, commonly known as GPS. GPS is a constellation of satellites that transmit positioning, navigation, and timing, or PNT data, down to us on Earth. And in the 1970s, the United States began pioneering this technology for military use. Today, it's vital for countless civilian purposes, including critical infrastructure. Because PNT data is so important, other leading states have developed their own worldwide navigation satellite systems. First, the then Soviet Union, and then quite a bit later, the European Union developed the GLONASS and Galileo systems respectively, providing free PNT data worldwide. GPS, though, has remained the most popular and has been considered the technical gold standard for some time. Just a few years ago, though, China joined this elite club of PNT providers. I wrote about China's Beidou system in a paper published by Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs earlier this year. Beidou has liberated China from its dependence on the U.S. GPS system. Chinese Communist Party Secretary, General Secretary Xi Jinping called it one of China's most important achievements in the last 40 years. This Beidou system has global coverage and it includes many advanced features, which has of course fueled interest in the relative capabilities of the US GPS system. Long planned modernization of GPS satellites has been slow. Some observers argue that GPS is losing its status as the PNT gold standard, even as civilian dependence upon PNT data continues to grow. So here today to help us understand the future of GPS are two longtime experts who have distinct yet complementary perspectives. Scott Pace, welcome to the podcast. Can you please tell us about yourself and your career? That's really dangerous asking an academic to talk about themselves. Um, uh, I'll just focus on uh, GPS uh, involvement uh, as the topic today. Um, I was in the Commerce Department, the Office of Space Commerce in the early 90s. Uh, around the time of the first Gulf War, but uh, and we were looking at commercial stats and saw that the GPS market, which, while tiny compared to, say, commercial communication satellites, was growing really rapidly. Uh, the, f the first derivative was all up. Uh, so that sort of caught our attention. Uh, during the Clinton administration, I was working for the RAND Corporation uh, and supporting the Office of Science Technology Policy and uh, helped with the background studies and support for uh, what became the first uh, national policy on GPS issued uh, in 1996 and announced by then Vice President Al Gore. Uh, I became uh, more involved in some of the spectrum issues for GPS in 97 at the World Radio Communications Conference where uh, a, a group of European countries attempted uh, to reallocate a portion of the lower band uh, for GPS uh, for a mobile satellite uh, service system and then spent the next three years going around the world uh, lobbying and other countries to protect the spectrum and uh, for GPS and what later would become Galileo after the, the Europeans reconsidered. Um, and then in the last several years, uh, I've been spending a, a number of, of uh, uh, efforts in uh, protecting GPS really domestically uh, from uh, 
terrestrial uh, communications proposals that have sought to, uh, again, repurpose the spectrum in and around uh, GPS. So uh, fighting for terrain uh, in, in spectrum has, has kind of been a long-term uh, long theme. Uh, one other thing I might add is also in, in the Commerce Department in the early 90s, uh, we rewrote the uh, export control laws and uh, wound up defining uh, GPS military receivers rather narrowly as those that contain cryptographic capabilities or navigation warfare capabilities. But in general, the vast bulk of uh, GPS receiver equipment uh, was a general des destination item and, and could be exported freely. And uh, I like to think that that helped contribute to the uh, wide popularity and spread of GPS uh, from that uh, regulatory move. Fantastic. Well, that is that is quite a an involved and multidimensional uh, exposure to GPS issues. Steve Poitner, thanks for joining us. You were among the the first entrepreneurs to develop consumer products using GPS. Can you can you share your journey? About twenty five years ago, um, here in Silicon Valley, uh, a few of my colleagues and I were were quite stunned by the fact that. In news reports, people would be using their cell phones. They would be dialing 911 from the cell phone uh, in an emergency situation. Uh, there were reports of people driving off of cliffs and getting stuck, you know, heart attacks, other medical emergencies, major car crashes. And then when they're talking to the 911 operator in this emergency situation, they couldn't be located. So uh, we started a company uh, called SnapTrack back in the 1990s that uh, worked to address a recent Federal Communications Commission mandate at the time. And that mandate was on the wireless industry. You got to find some way to locate these wireless callers in emergency situations. It was a very interesting uh, competitive dynamic that broke out. People recognized the big opportunity uh, there. And uh, we, uh, we started a company to try to figure out a way to put a GPS receiver into a cell phone. Uh, there were dozens of other competitors, all really focusing on terrestrial solutions where you put gear at every cell site and triangulate on the cell phone caller. And that was considered to be the best approach because that way you didn't need to modify the cell phone. But as it turned out, uh, terrestrial triangulation techniques don't work very well for a whole bunch of reasons. And GPS was the vastly superior approach. And yeah, I'm really, really pleased to you know to have been part of the team that brought GPS to the masses. At when Scott uh, was you know working on this in the 90, 1990s, as he was mentioning, it was a system that was dominated by military applications. But now, uh, as, as Sarah, as you mentioned, uh, now civilian applications dwarf the military applications. And, and so we, we did figure out how to put a GPS receiver into a cell phone. We were the first to do that. There were a lot of technical problems and challenges. You know, these GPS satellites, they're not LEOs. Uh, they're way up there. They're 11,000 miles up. You know, the signals are super weak by the time they hit the earth. And so putting a receiver of these super weak signals inside of a noisy cell phone is a very technically challenging problem. And then on the business side, let me just say that the wireless industry had no interest, ironically, in putting GPS receivers in their in their mobile phones. I remember the, the CEO of a major wireless carrier telling me, why on earth would anyone want a GPS receiver into a cell phone? So we had to overcome some of that too. But, but uh, Qualcomm ended up acquiring our company. 
and and uh, thanks to that that marriage, there there are you know literally billions of these receivers out there now based on that early SnapTrack technology, and that's uh, I've been part of that sector for a long time. Just started a new GPS company, startup company in Silicon Valley a few years ago to really focus on these new upgraded satellite signals, which I'm sure we'll talk about later here. Fantastic. All right. Well, again, welcome to you both. So, Scott, let's start with some history. Can you give us the backstory behind GPS's development and, and why and how it became so important first to the military and then to civilians? Uh, well, um, one of the founders of GPS, uh, Brad Parkinson, uh, was the uh, was an Air Force colonel who uh, was, was part of the original sort of founding of this. And he tells a, a, a wonderfully detailed story uh, about it back in the uh, back in the 70s. Uh, but the main thing to know is that uh, it was not really welcomed uh, by the Air Force initially. It, it kind of had to uh, fight for its existence. Um, and the, the idea of using satellites for geolocation, there are a number, there are some ideas from the Navy, there's some ideas from the Air Force. Um, and it was really some of the civilian leadership inside of uh, DOD that kind of persevered uh, and kept the program going. Uh, the very, very first NASTAR satellite was launched in 1974, uh, but it was pretty much an experimental program for many, many years. And so when it came to uh, kind of maybe widespread public notice in the first Gulf War around 91, um, it uh, uh, it still was, really was an experimental system. It wasn't really, uh, really fully uh, operational. Uh, even so, it played a diplomatic role. In uh, 1983, uh, the Soviets shot down a uh, errant uh, uh, passenger airliner, Korean Air 007, uh, killing all aboard, including a congressman. And um, as part of the reaction to that, President Reagan made an announcement that GPS signals would be made available to the international aviation community um, and making a commit so that tragedies like that, of course, would be less likely or shouldn't happen again. Um, so it went from being a technical idea championed by Air Force civilians over reluctant uh, military uh, to being something that then saw potential value as a air, air safety service to something that became a war-winning capability uh, in the first Gulf War. And then a few years later was declared, uh, you know, fully operational. Uh, the military applications, uh, of course, uh, were the predominant reason that it was built, why it, why it was paid for uh, by taxpayer money. Uh, there was, in the beginning, there was actually a line for user equipment uh, paying to develop. I remember that some of the very first user equipment I actually saw as an undergraduate was essentially a rack of electronics uh, that filled, uh, you know, part of a Winnebago uh, test vehicle, you know, out in uh, Sandia Labs. Um, and the story over the years is that rack of electronics shrunk down to a box and then uh, with the uh, work that uh, Steve uh, and his colleagues did, shrunk it down into a chip until the GPS device disappeared inside the other application. So going from a, a rack inside. In the 1990s, um, there were a number of people separately all talking about GPS. So the aviation people, of course, uh, were intrigued but wary. It would become more important to the military, certainly after the first Gulf War. Uh, and uh, there were people, of course, concerned about ballistic missile proliferation that adversaries could use the signals to guide ballistic missiles against us. Um, and uh, uh, from these very, and there was also the economic growth. Uh, you're seeing it showing up in survey and mapping technologies, so rapidly growing, adding productivity and infrastructure. 
But from a policy perspective, those groups are all just in separate silos. They, they don't necessarily talk to each other. But if you were in the White House or at least supporting the White House, uh, like myself and some others were, uh, you could see this theme popping up over and over again. And that led to uh, writing the first uh, policy uh, around GPS that kind of cut across uh, these different sectors as an example of a dual use technology. And one of the things that I think helped GPS be successful was not just the policy recognition, but I think fundamentally from an industry standpoint, the industry uh, thought of it as an information technology. Now, this was crucial because if you went to Europe, they thought of things like satellite navigation, if they had heard about it, um, as akin to Ariane Spas or maybe Airbus. It was, it was an aerospace technology. Um, if you talk to Japan, who took an early lead in car navigation systems, I think at one point they had 40% of the world car market navigation, <clears throat> they had that because they had an early lead as a small compact country in uh, digital maps. So Japan was digitally mapped much sooner than the US was. <clears throat> so that combination of digital maps, guidance systems, and a piece of electronics rolled out into the aftermarket. Now you could go to Akihabara and buy a car navigation device and there was nothing on it to tell you that the signals from this came from an Air Force satellite, you know, halfway to geo, but it was just a car navigation device. So they thought of GPS as kind of this consumer product kind of thing. And Europeans as an aerospace product, I think the US companies um, like, like Steve, like Trimble Navigation, like Garmin, Magellan and others, thought of it as a uh, as an IT technology that was much more uh, generalizable. Uh, and uh, I think that also led to its spread and proliferation. Uh, so like other dual use technologies, the internet, radar, um, it comes out of the military, but then uh, spreads into the civilian economy. So so transitioning over to, to you, Steve, you know, you're, you're an entrepreneur and your current startup relies on GPS. Can you talk to us about how you evaluate GPS's capabilities in this broader context of, of more competitors and the more recent arrival of Beto? Now, let me first say that um, the Air Force and Scott and his colleagues, I mean, the, 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 in, the invention and deployment of GPS's should go down as one of the most important inventions in in the, in the last hundred years, it's had such a huge, profound impact on the safety and productivity of billions of people. You know, uh, we as a country should be very, very proud of it. So um, now I'm, I'm about to, to mention we're falling behind now. And it's, it's um, I'm, I'm sad to have to report that, you know, because, but it is what it is. And one, one reason why I think it's important for all of us here to, to speak up is that the we know that the military is so busy working on lots of different things, and it's important that the, the civilian users speak up loudly so that it gets the attention that it needs. But, you know, we've built this this next generation, you know, GNSS is the more generic term, Global Navigation Satellite Systems. We built this general purpose GNSS receiver that has these on-off switches for, the, you know, you can, the U.S. system, GPS, the, the European system, Galileo. Uh, the, the China system Beto. And so uh, what we have is a, a system that focuses on these new modernized signals. You know, Scott mentioned 1974. That's like, I think GPS just celebrated its 50th birthday, you know, anniversary from its in, invention. 
But that original L1 signal in the L band, you know, 1.5 gigahertz, I mean, it's an old signal. I mean, 50 years ago, uh, there, there, there weren't the same techniques that are available today. Uh, so, you know, the, the new modernized GPS signal, you know, called L5, also in the L band, it's a modern signal. Um, no surprise because, you know, we've the, the, the new upgraded signal takes advantage of all these new error correction techniques and it's a stronger signal and it's harder to jam and spoof and it's got a lot of amazing characteristics. So our, our receiver can receive this new upgraded so-called L5 band signal from these various countries. And, and uh, it's, it's a fact that we've, you know, are losing that race. So we invented GPS, the whole world adopts it. And now the, the race to upgrade to this new L5 signal, we're behind. So, uh, you know, there's 24 satellites about in each of these constellations, plus or minus a few. You need about 24 satellites to get global coverage. Uh, you have uh, in this race to upgrade, you have the Europeans that have fully upgraded their 28 satellites. They all have the new L5 signal now um, called E5 in, in Europe. Uh, the, the L5 signal in China is called B2, you know, all 27 of the China you know, Beto satellites have been upgraded. In the United States, on, on, on the other hand, only 18 of the 24 have been upgraded. And so the Air Force labels these satellites as pre-operational and, and yeah, and there, you know, some reports indicate that they're maybe close to a decade behind their own forecasts of upgrading these, these satellites. Um, so that's kind of one major difference is that, you know, we don't have a complete constellation of these new, modern, amazing signals while, while China and Europe does. Uh, some people do believe that China now has the most uh, precise signals. Uh, we, we can we compare them every day. You know, we, I, I mentioned we have these on off switches so we can tell you for a fact, how, you know, the quality here. I mean, when it comes to signal strength, I mean, the, for a variety of technical reasons, their signals are a little bit stronger meaning that you can receive slightly weaker signals and process them. Uh, the time to first fix, which is one of the, you know, important measurements, how fast does it take for you to get a you know, location fix, slightly faster with the China signal. Uh, so combined with the fact that they have a lot more satellites up there, you know, we're now behind for sure. Absolutely. Now, there, some people will, will argue that the quality of our, of our, the, of the clocks that, you know, that are in these GPS you know, satellites are better than anyone else in the world. And there's some reason to believe that's true. And that, but there's other academic researchers that are not so sure. Anyhow, bottom line, we're behind. And it's important to put a spotlight on that fact. Uh, China has a billion users now of its system. Um, and because of all the different things I mentioned, it, it provides the best location accuracy of anybody right now. So let me switch back to you, Scott. So Steve is describing building products that can take inputs from every single GNSS system. Um, does it matter whether or not Americans are using, uh, you know, a modernized GPS if they can use modernized systems from from other countries? Uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, on one hand, uh, everything Steve says, I think it's true uh, in, in terms of these characteristics. The, the, really, the question is, that's how much does that matter. Uh, on one hand, I really hope that uh, uh, L5 system builds out uh, more rapidly, as he's correct. Uh, uh, L5 not only is, uh, is, is a bit nicer design, uh, but it, uh, it's in aviation safety band, so it's in a, a piece of spectrum that's protected uh, for safety purposes. 
I will point out that the decision um, for the 1176 megahertz that uh, L5 sits on uh, was actually quite controversial and protracted. And it took Vice President Al Gore to kind of finally, you know, uh, make the decision. And in 1999, okay, so we're talking 24 years ago, uh, the decision for selecting this was done. And so it begs the question about, well, how come since that decision was made 24 years ago, you know, what's been the problem? The problem is, is that policy has always emphasized that GPS needs to be the predominant military service. It only secondarily serves commercial purposes. The reason GPS was built was for military purposes, and then civilian users were allowed uh, access to it uh, for free. Um, and uh, that meant that the GPS, um, keeping it available for free and so forth, and uh, uh, meant that civilian need that civilian needs were not prioritized to the same degree that military needs were because the military was paying for it. Now there have been efforts over the years to have um, transportation department as kind of like the lead entity for civil users. Um, NASA also plays a bit, but more in space. Uh, and one of the problems that DOT has had is keeping uh, its share of the bargain and providing funding for the civil line. There have been a number of years where DOT has proposed and sought funding uh, for civil improvements to GPS. And then either it didn't make it through the White House or it made it through the White House and didn't make it through Congress or it made it through Congress and the money was earmarked for some other purpose. Um, so there hasn't been a dedicated uh, funding source uh, for DOT uh, to keep up its part of the bargain. And you can imagine the frustration this creates for the Air Force who says, OK, I, I plan for you to be here. I'm." I'm not going to pay for your requirements, but I'm, I'm happy to be supportive, you know, if you show up with your your resources. Um, we've been able to do that for some things uh, like, uh, uh, to pick an obscure example, uh, laser retroreflectors that give you better geodetic positioning of the satellite that NASA has paid for and helped pay for the integration. But that's been that's a much more modest cost than adding L5 to the system. So while from a policy standpoint, we've recognized GPS as dual use and it's governed at kind of a national level, when it comes to funding, uh, the priorities go toward DOD and DOD requirements are being met. I mean, they will be very clear that, that their requirements are, are being met. Now, from a commercial or civil standpoint, the strategy, the counter strategy, because of, of uh, maybe not building everything into the satellite, has been to build augmentation systems. Uh, the FAA and Transportation Department were not able to get the kind of insight into the uh, reliability and resiliency of GPS at a very granular level that they needed for their air traffic systems. And so they built the wide area augmentation system, which effectively is an augmentation overlay that independently checks validation because it doesn't trust GPS. And many other countries do the same thing, have these augmentation systems. Uh, in terms of how the commercial market has responded, uh, I can't, again, Steve might be able to correct me on, on this, but there's virtually no uh, consumer uses of GPS, which are pure GPS signals. They're all augmented in some way, whether from Wi-Fi, cell networks, mapping systems, it's layers and layers of systems. So multi-GNSS is, is simply one more layer on top of the base utility signal. What really matters, what I think is most important for GPS is it to be reliable? The integrity and availability are the most important questions. Um, the actual accuracy um, uh, obviously needs to be acceptable, uh, but that's less important than it be trustworthy. 
the Russians, uh, GLONASS system. Uh, there used to be a time in the 90s when people built joint GLONASS GPS systems, and everybody thought it was great to use these two systems until they abandoned them because the GLONASS system, the satellites would be unhealthy and the Russians wouldn't set them unhealthy and people used bad data that they then had to remove. And so the market for multi-gene SS systems basically collapsed at that point because it was worse than useless. What's great about uh, the Chinese so far is that they are operating with seemingly fairly reliable. They have not had the kind of, of uh, trustworthiness problems that the Russians suffered from. Uh, and so they, you know, again, should be commended uh, for their performance. On the other hand, uh, that's not really the most important thing in a multi-GNSS and augmentation world. It maybe hurts our pride a little bit, but, but it's not the existential kind of threat that I think sometimes people worry about. Well, let's come back to this this issue of, of GPS's own capabilities. And you, you both describe, you know, sort of the multidimensional pursuit of PNT. Uh, but the reality, I think, is for most consumers, if, if GPS were to go down or there were going to be disruption that, that was more broadly felt across GNSS, people would be pretty upset. I mean, the, the impact on our economies, not to mention our transportation systems and everything else, would be severe. And so, you know, the question I think for, for viewers or the question I'd like to, to ask is, if this is the silent utility that it's often described in academic circles, who speaks on behalf of the silent utility? You know, how, how, do you, how do you make that case for modernization and for greater anti-jamming and the kinds of, of features that Steve was talking about? So Scott, you know, from a bureaucratic standpoint, you know, who's, who's out there lobbying, you know, their congresspersons for, for GPS modernization? And then over, over to you, Steve, you know, what is the, the future that we should be looking at? And what is the longer term vision for how we think about um, both the, the enhanced reliability to Scott's point, but also the continued advancement in features? So Scott, first to you. Well, I, I think, um, again, just as I described different approaches to uh, thinking about GPS as a industrial item, you know, aerospace, IT, or consumer product. Um, there's also been these sorts of debates about, uh, do, do I look on GPS, uh, maybe as another analogy rather than utility, as like an operating system. Uh, you know, uh, we have essentially GPS is kind of like Linux, you know, it's, it's a little crufty, uh, but it's free, it's there, it's installed in everything. Uh, it's a basic system that everybody builds, builds on. Uh, and then somebody else comes along, say, like Europe, and says, oh, uh, we'd like you to use our new version of Windows Vista. Here's has all these great applications and, and things, you know, on it, and we want you to pay more for it. Um, do you really want to put the complexity in space, or do you want to put the complexity on the ground? Um, I think there are arguments to be made for improving the reliability of the signal. Certainly going to L5, I think, is plainly justifiable for no other reason than public safety. Uh, in the safety band. Um, there are certainly arguments for improving the L1 signal. There's a thing called L1C civil signal, which is to then be more interoperable with Galileo. There are identified purposes that we already have approved that we frankly should fund and do. Um, but after that, uh, I'm thinking the complexity really needs to be on the ground or in different space systems. Uh, the ground so far has been all these different augmentations I've mentioned. The new space systems um, there are a category of uh, new ideas, and you know, Steve, you probably know about these, of uh, LEO PNT uh, designs. Uh, Zona uh, is, is, is one that has come up. 
uh, where it's a sort of small net, not small, several hundred sort of satellites up there that provide additional signals that can integrate onto a chip to provide uh, better accuracy and uh, better availability and very, very interesting. And uh, there's some interesting work being done now to make sure it's compatible in spectrum because as somebody who's fought multiple decades of spectrum wars over interference, I'm not interested in having more interference, but uh, some initial signs are promising still to be demonstrated. Uh, and if that were to happen, we would see maybe a new ecosystem. I think just as Steve, some of the things that you're doing about applications for, for L5 and others. So the, the innovation doesn't have to only be in the satellite system itself, the original Linux system. It can also be in these other other applications. And to date, they've been on the ground. There's some potential for that to be in space. Um, and so rather than trying to compete with the Chinese dollar for dollar in a large centralized system that, you know, frankly, I think we could do and it, it wouldn't succeed very much. Uh, I'd like to see ways we can inter innovate around that uh, and build upon the large installed base that we already have, uh, but maybe in a more decentralized way than the Chinese system. So Steve, you represent one of the fundamental differences in this game, which is that when you're thinking about GNSS systems, you're thinking about government expenditures, government systems. So we have one train of thought, which is how much are we investing in those government systems? And then as Scott was alluding to, we've got the, the private sector doing all kinds of, offering all kinds of different augmentation and potentially new paradigms for thinking about this. Talk about, about what you see in the future, both for your own company and your own thinking. How much do we invest in, in the GPS system? How much do we, do we innovate around it? Right. Uh, yeah, uh, Scott's right. The, there's lots of great augmentation work happening. Um, Scott mentioned, you know, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, you know, assist cell tower network, you know, information that helps you, you to add to the location information. Uh, gyros, you know, every cell phone now has accelerometers and gyros and altimeters and all kinds of things that also feed into the, the location calculation. But with that said, I, I will, I do want to emphasize um, the importance, though, of having uh, a absolute location technology as the anchor. And so the, there's nothing like, you know, GPS or its equivalents around the world as absolutely critical component. Uh, so the, the augmentation helps you operate indoors or in heavily blocked environments, that kind of thing. But w without that anchor system, the whole thing would collapse. It goes back to what I was saying, you know, uh, 25 years ago when we were in the big race to figure out how to comply with the FCC mandate. If you can't really depend on terrestrial navigation, uh, uh, navigation or triangulation, there's just too much blockage. Sometimes you're not seeing multiple cell towers. I mean, having that satellite trajectory and views, you know, is really critical to the way modern civilian location technology operates. But with that said, you know, absolutely backup systems that are LEO based or even some terrestrial backup systems, augmentation systems is the wave of the future, absolutely critical to make GPS work in more in difficult environments or when there's some you know, interference or jamming you know, to, to deal with. If I can just go back to, you know, what do we need to do you know, tomorrow though, and how do we allocate resources? I mean, the, the fact that our L5 upgrade is such a huge upgrade. You know, every time we get an upgrade on our cell phone, 
you know, is it really, you know, a few little things? Is it really that big of a deal, these upgrades? Well, the difference between L5 and L1 is massive, is really. I mean, Scott mentioned another big advantage that, that I didn't even mention earlier, and that is that it's in this, you know, reserved part of the L band with a lot less interference. So the, the government, the U.S. government has its role and the private sector has its role. But uh, it's important for civilian users, you know, to pound the table, finish the upgrade. That's the first thing that would have a profound impact. I mean, 18 satellites that have been upgraded is not a complete system. Uh, and, there's, and, and there's been articles written that, that uh, there's four of these new L5 satellites sitting in warehouses that haven't been launched yet because there's other priorities. Uh, and, and, and in addition to that, uh, various military folks have told us that, that they, the satellites were built in such a robust way that they're not you know, breaking as fast or falling apart as fast as they thought. And so some of the older satellites continue to operate and there, there, are, there are decision makers in the Pentagon that go, well, until these things break, we're not launching the new set, the new satellites. And so that, that's, you know, in my humble opinion, the wrong way to think about it. When you have the new technology ready, paid for and built, you got to get them launched and up there. I think it's one of the, uh, our colleagues out at Space uh, Space Command said says I've got GPS satellites under control that are old enough to buy a beer. That's right. And by the way, it's worth mentioning that there's other things that that the Pentagon's having to deal with here. The ground control system built on IBM 360s using Fortran code. They're having trouble. I mean, there's a there's GAO reports about how that that whole ground control system upgrade is way behind schedule too. There's a lot that needs to be focused on here to get this, our GPS system up and modernized. I think part of the problem is that the, 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 the military has its hands full on lots of different things. And, and um, the, the civilian side of the equation needs to be focused on more. And that, that requires you know, you know, a, a, a spotlight put on what would happen. It's more than losing access to Uber or DoorDash. I mean, the whole every cell tower has a GPS receiver for timing synchronization. The banking system uses it. I mean, it's, it's so fundamental part of our of our private sector economy. It'd be catastrophic if 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 our if our system, you know, uh, became dysfunctional for some reason. Which is why I do think it's worth this country investing the resources it needs to be self sufficient. That doesn't mean in, in general day to day operation we can't you know, augment the system, like Scott says, absolutely great, uh, or combine it with other uh, systems from Europe or other places, that's fine too. But if in, if when push comes to shove, this country better have, you know, a system that it can rely on itself that's modernized and ready to go. Well, thank you both so much for helping us unpack uh, so many of the different dimensions around the question of Wither GPS. Uh, it's been a great discussion. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. For more information related to this topic, you can look for our upcoming podcast that is entitled How Resilient is America's PNT Data? And you can subscribe to the IQT podcast. You can leave us your reviews or comments, and you can also check out IQT's website at www.iqt.org for other content about cutting edge technology. Thank you all.